Welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend, colleague, my brother from another mother, Derek Davison. Derek, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. It's possible, uh, uh, this is foreshadowing the interview, but I think it's possible I may have been uh, attacked by a directed energy weapon sometime in the last couple of days because uh, I'm not feeling so hot, but uh, I'll, I'll manage. Our podcast is too powerful. We're taking down governments, (laughs) one government at a time. But luckily, I've got some reporters to connect you to. (laughs) We'll take this claim very seriously. Yeah, definitely. We can. We could definitely sell this story to somebody. Uh, Let's uh, let's do it. I've been attacked by microwaves. So Derek's a little sick, everyone. So forgive him for what's sure to be a horrible performance this week. Yes, (laughs) I think it's still mellifluous, but you know, there's lots going on in the world this week. A a lot of developments. uh, in particular, the uh, big, it's, American... It's a big week for democracy, and the enemies yeah. of democracy are taking it on the chin. I no, think. They're not doing well. This is why we need to <laughs> man the barricades. Uh, so particularly in the American media, there's been a lot made about um, Russia-Ukrainian tensions. And I could always tell when the media is playing something up because I receive texts from friends that are like, what's going on with Ukraine? What's going on with Russia? So why don't when you tell us? Through, it breaks through the, the indifference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the general uh, indifference. Policy, yeah. uh, so um, what's been going on, man? Tell us. Well, so, I mean, the big event this week and, you know, the the, the Russia and Ukraine and the United States continue to sort of trade accusations that somebody's going to do something uh, in Ukraine. You know, the, the latest is, you know, the Ukrainians now uh, say the Russians have 120,000 soldiers near the Ukrainian border, which, you know, seems a bit subjective to me, but uh, who's to say? Uh, the Russians are, are continuing to kind of warn the Ukrainians about some impending uh, Ukrainian invasion of the separatist uh, eastern Donbass region, which may or may not be in the the, the, the planning stages. Uh, but the big event was Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin held a, a video summit or video conference summit, whatever you want to call it, uh, on Tuesday. Did Biden make it through the meeting fully awake? Uh, he did. He did. It did he fart like, uh, at all? Uh, well, there, was there any I farting? Say. That I can't say. And since they were on video conference, I guess Putin wouldn't really know unless it was audible. Um, well, there was a lot of muting I heard. <laughs> Every couple of minutes, <laughs> Biden would mute for five seconds. Well, um, you know, you got to do what you got to do. We've yeah, no, fair there. enough. American Precise um, endorses that. So, I, I, I mean, I don't, they didn't really achieve anything substantive um they seem on questions of substance really to talk past one another the the idea you know that that i've seen some people argue which has some merit to it is just the fact that they talked can help sort of you know reduce tensions and and bring the temperature down uh but on the substance uh, biden sort of leveled his his biggest threats you know he brought out the big kind of stick uh 
to threaten Putin with, which is, you know, there's a basket of things, anything from uh, shutting down the, the, the new Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is a major uh, Russian pipeline that connects through the Baltic Sea, connects Russia uh, directly to Germany and is a, you know, is a big export vehicle for them um that's one thing uh, there are you know even you know more kind of punitive sanctions that uh, biden could impose he, he could go as far as like cutting the russian banks off from uh the swift network which would be a, a real hammer blow to the uh the russian economy presumably uh so he kind of waved those around that Wait, that's Derek, uh, before- as far as yeah one yeah. very quickly before you continue how could biden cut off the Nord Stream pipeline how is well, that he in his remit? I mean, he would he would appeal to the brand new. Actually, we may get into this. The right. brand new German government we will. Uh, to uh, to do that, and I, I think they would probably be receptive. Uh, this, I mean, these would be things that would be done after an invasion, after a Russian invasion, as as punishment, and the threat is being kind of waved around now as a deterrent, or you know, the intention is to deter uh, an invasion. I think if, if Russia were to invade Ukraine, the, the German government would be receptive, uh, especially this one. Uh, Merkel might have pushed back a little bit, uh, but but this one I think would be receptive to the idea of cutting off the, the Which pipeline. is a big deal, because Germany went against the EU, uh, essentially, to Develop this well, pipe, it's, yeah, uh, it's pipeline. a huge deal. I that mean, there's a, a, there's deal, a lot yeah. of concern about Nord Stream two in terms of you know making Germany and and you know Western Europe basically more dependent uh, on, on Russian gas supplies. Um, it it allows, in theory, it would allow the Russians if uh, not just Ukraine, if like Poland or some other one of the other kind of transit states uh, through which. Russian gas currently passes to get into Central and Western Europe uh, were to, you know, cheese off the Russians, they could, in theory, now cut them off and just ship the gas through uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and go around them, which which is a, a, a pretty big cudgel that the Russians can yield uh, against some of those states. So, the, yeah, there were a lot of concerns about this, uh, this pipeline, and, and cutting it off would be a big deal. Um, okay, so what's your take ultimately on the Russia-Ukraine situation? Because it's been there's well, been a lot so, of uh, saber rattling. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's still in the realm of saber rattling. The uh, Putin's big demand apparently in this call was uh, some sort of ironclad guarantee that NATO is not going to expand uh, really any further than it has, any further east than it has, but certainly into uh, Ukraine that it, that it won't add Ukraine as a member. Um, Putin, to some degree, has control over this because NATO is not going to, even if NATO were interested in admitting Ukraine, it's not going to do so uh, while there's a major territorial. Uh, conflict going on inside Ukraine. NATO would not invite that uh, on itself. Uh, so, I mean, the, the chances of, of Ukraine getting into NATO or, or you know, even having its membership uh, which it's been, you know, pushing for 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 a couple of decades now. Uh, even advancing that process are, are, are pretty slim. But Putin wants uh, some kind of a guarantee. Uh, I, I, that's not something that Biden can give, uh, even if he were inclined <laughs> to do so. The next U.S. president could come along and uh, and abrogate it. Uh, so you know, that's not really something that Biden can realistically give him. And uh, this also Biden- just. That promise was made also already well, uh, when the was, Soviet Union was, was totally collapsing. Right. It was made in the 90s. And, Look at the know, work of Joshua Schifrinson, who, who's really investigated this, and it does seem like the U.S. did promise not to expand right. NATO. Right. So, yeah, I mean, any promise would be sort of uh, hollow, I think. But 
Biden has apparently offered uh, a follow-on meetings between Russian officials and NATO officials, not just the U.S., but probably like Germany, France, Italy, the U.K., you know, all kind of collectively talking about the general security architecture in Europe. So that may be a way out of this um, escalating crisis. Um, it's not going to do much to end finally the the Ukrainian civil war, which has been frozen in place for uh, several years now, but it, it could be a, a way for everybody to kind of come back from the precipice that they seem to be on. So speaking of the Nord Stream, what's been going on in uh, Germany? I think we could finally say goodbye to Angela Merkel. Yes, the Merkel era is officially over. Olaf Scholz became chancellor on Wednesday, uh, and uh, his his new coalition, uh, which is nominally left of center, uh, includes his own Social Democratic Party, uh, the Green Party, and the Free Democratic Party, which is sort of a classical liberal slash libertarian uh, party. So, uh, you know, I, we can wax philosophical, I guess, about the end of the Merkel era, and it really was an era, 16 years. Um, in terms of what is likely to change, I think, to, to cop a phrase or to borrow one from Joe Biden, I think nothing fundamentally is going to change uh, about German politics. There was a, a piece of Jacobin uh, this week, you know, talking about Schultz himself, who is a member of the Social Democratic Party, but comes, I think, very much out of that party's right wing. Um, he's named as his finance minister, the head of the Free Democratic Party, which means, you know, on on economic matters, at least uh, his government is likely to be a continuation, I would think, of the the, the basic kind of neoliberal architecture of the the Merkel government. So I, I don't think a lot is going to change. They've they've said they intend to prioritize COVID and climate change. Um, I, I don't think they're going to, I don't think <laughs> they're going to do much. Brave promises, change. brave promises, yeah, I mean, guys. COVID is sort of the obvious thing that everybody says now when they take power, but uh, I don't see uh, much happening on climate change with the FDP in control of the the, uh, the economic ministries. And in, terms, and in terms of Germany's geostrategic position, going to be, you know, usual, make some claims, but ultimately bow to the U.S. pressure, which, you yeah, know, allows Biden so. to say, like, he could just cut right. off the first I mean, I think what this does is it sort of shifts the if you want to say who's the leader of Europe now, which is the big thing that people talk about uh, with Merkel, it's probably Emmanuel Macron in France now. Um, friend of the pod, yeah, oh, big big time friend of the pod, love him. Uh, but you know he's likely to he and Schultz are likely to get along. I think Schultz will be more of a junior partner uh, in that relationship as opposed to the uh, kind of adult in the room as Merkel was. Uh, but I, I don't think anything serious is going to change. France and Germany will still be the two uh, drivers of the European Union. It's just they may, you know, kind of switch places a little bit. Well, that's a good place to turn to now some of the most exciting developments in international politics, some of the most important things going on, perhaps in world <laughs> history. And that is, of course, the Olympic boycott and the Summit for Democracies. So, Derek, what's been going on with the Olympic boycott? Yeah, I see these as sort of related in that they're 
both dumb and both not going to do anything. <laughs> uh, the, the the U.S. announced earlier this week that it will be uh, it has had been rumored or expected, I think, for some time now. It will be uh, diplomatically boycotting February's Winter Olympics in Beijing uh, over you know alleged Chinese malfeasance or in Hong Kong, Xinjiang, you name it. The uh, diplomatic boycotts basically means no U.S. officials will attend. No U.S. government officials will attend. The athletes will still go. They'll still participate. Uh, so it's really a symbolic thing. Uh, the uh, Australian, British, and Canadian governments have since announced that they too will be diplomatically boycotting the games. Um, I don't think it's going to go much further than that. The French government followed on pretty quickly and said, we will not be uh, boycotting. And I think that will be the general EU response. Um, so I think it'll probably end with these four uh, four buddies uh, not going. Now, the, the Chinese response to this has been interesting. I think they clearly feel a little embarrassed by this. Um, you know, the, the initial response to the, uh, the U.S. boycott was uh, basically nobody invited you anyway. <laughs> like, that was their initial response. Like, we didn't invite you in the first place. Who cares? Uh, but then, you know, and they've done this with each <laughs> successive country. Like, energy. who cares? Yeah. You won't be missed. But then they follow it up with these, like, vague threats. Like, you're going to pay a price for this. You'll I'll be sorry. Uh, so I think that they're clearly, you know, feeling a little bit of a sting. Uh, but if yeah, it doesn't it get any not, bigger, for people to say they're not going to go to your party, no one wants to hear that. Uh, it does. It does. And I think, you know, um, I think there was a real concern when when the administration announced this that it would snowball uh, into a major thing. If it's just going to be these four countries, I think they could probably uh, live with that. But it, it could have been more embarrassing. Uh, when the Olympics comes up, we'll definitely do an episode on the history of the Olympics. That should be fun. But let's go to something that will be written about in 4,000 years. The summit Is the summit of or summit for democracies? I don't even know. Uh, uh, let's just sum it up. Summit for. It's a summit for summit democracy. Four. Okay. So in yes. 4,000 years when historians are looking back on this period, this will be the day <laughs> that they will announce everything changed. Everything changed, yeah. So what's been going on? I mean, and I just have to lay out my cards. Like, I think like this democracy versus authoritarianism thing is, um, you know, generally a way to shore up American hegemony and has been used as such since the 1940s and particularly since the early Cold War. So um, I'm pretty uh, skeptical about things like this. But Derek, what's been going on? Well, it's this this particular summit. I mean, I agree with you. The you know overall in general, I think this particular summit is basically, uh, the, you know, an anti-China thing. Um, and the the guest list. Uh, this is a two-day virtual summit with leaders from over a hundred countries. Uh, oh no, I, I guess uh, over a hundred were invited. Uh, but uh, somewhat fewer, around 90, it looks like, uh, are actually attending. Um, the, the guest list makes it pretty clear what the, what the game is. Um, they have not invited Turkey and Hungary for, you know, are two examples of countries that have, um, I guess by some measure backslid somewhat on democracy and, and their leaders are, uh, you know, somewhat authoritarian, but at the same time, you know, they, they did invite 
the Philippines, they invited Pakistan, they invited India, all of which, you know, you could say the same thing about all these other, all of these countries, that they're not really, uh, you know, the democracy thing's a little iffy. But what they are is valuable kind of uh, countries. Pakistan is a, is a huge Chinese ally, of course, but, uh, you know, if you could cultivate them and kind of peel, you know, create some distance there. Uh, and traditionally a U.S. Helpful. ally for much of the Cold War. Uh, used to be a U.S. ally, not so much anymore, sort of uh, Afghanistan, the, the war in Afghanistan uh, really put the kibosh on that. And, and you know, has also been, uh, for all of that time, has been uh, uh, consistently uh, uh, had pretty good relations with China, but they're, they're increasingly kind of uh, in China's orbit. But, you know, to invite India, to invite the Philippines uh, to this discussion, I don't even really know what it's supposed to achieve. It's not clear that the administration knows what it's supposed to achieve. It's just uh, supposed to talk about how nice democracy is and how we could do better, I guess. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but it seems pretty clear that the, the target for this is, is China, at least clear to me anyway. So is anything going to happen or is this just more nonsense? I think it's nonsense. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, um, again, to my knowledge, they haven't even laid out like a goal other than to get these countries together and and chat about the virtues of democracy. I think the the administration would like uh, to see some of these countries, if not all of them, uh, do things like uh, you know, joining in, joining U.S. sanctions. Uh, they, they they issued a whole slew of sanctions this week for human rights violations in uh, Syria, Iran, uh, Uganda, a couple other places that I think were meant partly as sort of examples of uh, some of the things that that the attendees at this conference could be doing to uh, you know make the world safe for freedom and democracy or truth, justice in the American way or whatever. Um, but. But I, I don't. It's not clear to me that they have uh, a defined objective for for achieving anything here, uh, and they won't achieve anything. And on that happy note, let's go to our interview, <laughs> Derek. Well, and there again. is. I should say there's a there was a good piece. Uh, if people are interested in reading more about this, there's a good piece by Ryan Costello at uh, Responsible Statecraft uh, a couple of days ago, or I think Wednesday, um, about. You know, not only how futile this this summit is, but about the hypocrisy of it and the fact that the United States does more than anyone else in the world, basically, to shore up authoritarian governments. Like we have alliances uh, with many authoritarian governments, uh, even when we impose sanctions and try to punish um, other, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, the 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 authoritarian governments we don't like we we wind up kind of entrenching those regimes and and uh, supporting them in a uh, kind of unintentional way I guess but it, it's uh, none of that is obviously going to be addressed here so it's it's just sort of an empty uh, exercise in in uh, dip- diplomacy I guess or showy diplomacy uh, well that that's very interesting and important but never interrupt me again. <laughs> On that note, everyone, enjoy our interview with Bob Wright and Natalie Shore. We'll see you next week. Bye. Yes. 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 Yes.
Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek once again with you uh, and joining me as always, or as, as as not always necessarily, but most of the time at least, uh, is my co-host Danny Bessner. Danny, how are you doing? Wow, you missed one episode and now everything's up I, in the air. Jesus two, Christ, you Derek. two episodes. This is, so this is this workerist. Is a, this I had is COVID. A, this is a pattern with you and we're going to have to talk about it in your in your quarterly <laughs> review. But oh anyway. Oh my God. I just uh, never put you in charge of the money. <laughs> yes, but I'm fine. Thanks for asking. <laughs> We're very lucky to be joined this week by two esteemed guests, Natalie Shure, columnist at the New Republic, uh, and Bob Wright, who is a former columnist at the New Republic, and uh, among many other things, he's written uh, several books, The Moral Animal, uh, Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny, Why Buddhism is True, most recently. Uh, he's the proprietor of bloggingheads.tv and of the Non-Zero newsletter uh, at Substack. Uh, we'll have links to at least some of these things, I guess, in the show description, uh, so you can check those out. And we are all gathered here to discuss the great plague of our time, and I'm not talking about COVID. I am, of course, talking about Havana Syndrome, uh, the mysterious ailment that has befallen many members of the... Oh, we're jumping right to the conspiracy talk. Okay, all right. That's good. That's good. Uh, so uh, let's get right into it. And Natalie, as the person who, uh, to my mind, has done more work than anybody uh, to debunk uh, the, uh, I don't even know what to describe it as, the sort of uh, panic about Havana Syndrome and the uh, alleged attacks on American diplomats and uh, intelligence were, uh, intelligence officers by some uh, enemy state or combination of enemy states. Uh, you've done uh, amazing work kind of debunking this. Can you, um, sticking, I guess, to what we know, uh, to the extent possible, uh, describe for people what Havana syndrome is or what it's referring to. Absolutely. So Havana syndrome uh, really started at the very tail end of November, or the very tail end of December 2016 uh, in Cuba. A couple people who we now know to have been under diplomatic cover uh, started to report some strange symptoms. Uh, some of those symptoms included, you know, hearing loss, uh, ringing in ears, dizziness, headaches, nausea, fatigue, things along those lines. Um, the first couple of reports, or at least a string of several, were accompanied by uh, recollection of a, a strange sound, a screeching sound. Um, that seems to have fairly quickly led the discussion over to um, potential sonic weapon being used in Havana. This was um, among, you know, mostly uh, diplomatic cover CIA agents at first, and then kind of expanding to people who were, um, you know, serving in the consular division, serving for the State Department, um, eventually there are about, you know, two dozen cases, uh, by, you know, sometime mid 2017 and they, uh, start to investigate this as a potential, you know, hostile attack situation, uh, that gets out and it's almost immediately used as a pretext to scale back our diplomatic presence in Cuba once again. Uh, Marco Rubio is one of the early people. 
um, you know, really beating his chest against it. And this is during the Trump administration. So they didn't really want much of a diplomatic connection with Cuba to begin with. Um, then it falls out of the news for a little bit. Uh, there are some other cases potentially reported in China. There's sort of, you know, a couple other country rumblings. That it's not in the news too, too much uh, in 2018 or 2019. And then in 2020, it really hits the news hard again. There are cases all over the world, uh, including in front of the White House, uh, some in Arlington, Virginia, um, spreading from... Uh, you know, initially just the CIA and the State Department to a couple in the Department of Defense, uh, a couple, I think, working for Congress people, things along those lines, but really primarily uh, foreign service government agency jobs and contractors. Uh, there are now believed to be two or three hundred cases around the world. Um, sonic weapon is no longer the theory. It's now more directed energy or microwave weapon. Um, but, you know, somewhat similar cluster of symptoms, people who, you know, uh, experience headaches, fatigue, nausea, etc., um, fervently believe that they were struck by weapons wielded by uh, Russia is the strongest guess that anyone has. Um, but so far, there is no concrete evidence for that theory or for much of any of it. Uh, Natalie, that was really interesting. And it reminds me just to, you know, put on my historian's hat here for a second, is that the fantasy of these types of long range rep weapons have really been a, a, a central element of U.S. national security culture, going back to really the creation of the a modern national security state in, in the 1940s. Uh, for example, at the Rand Corporation, one of its earliest documents when it was just called Project X was focusing on um, building a death ray uh, that would be able to, you know, be beamed at people. And, and this is obviously becomes a significant trope of Cold War fiction in particular, the idea of the death ray. I mean, I think The Simpsons makes reference to it a bunch of times, and a ton of Cold War um, films and cultural products do. So, um, what is what do you think is why of all things is is do people think it's a death ray effectively this sort of microwave ray, ray? And is there any evidence for that? Yeah. So, what's frustrating about this is ultimately the evidence that they have is a string of people got sick. Uh, and, you know, the symptoms as as the patients describe them, the ones that have come out publicly in the media, they sound very debilitated. Um, you know, these people are experiencing symptoms that have in some cases led them to prematurely retire or stop working. Um, you know, they're very distressed by these things. And certainly, you know, I, I know people in my own life who have suffered things like this, and I don't want to downplay what people are actually going through. But that said, these symptoms are very common. Uh, they certainly don't point to a death ray. Uh, if people get sick, especially over the span of a couple years, you're not necessarily going to think like there's a death ray somewhere behind a wall. We just need to find it. Um, and I think, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, suspicion came down very early, um, and after after they basically got the sonic gun idea in their head in Havana in the first few cases in 2017, uh, it's never fully dislodged. And they settled on that because some people reported um, hearing an odd sound on uh, right around the time that they recall symptom onset. Uh, they heard a strange sound. 
Um, some of the diplomats um, and spies stationed in Cuba at the time even recorded that sound, played it for others. Um, other people recognized it. Uh, some people had even reported hearing such a sound that they had thought was annoying uh, at their housing. Um, and so this, this sound was really an early and important part of the lore. Um, I, I hope it's not giving too much away that a subsequent uh, a subsequent investigation uh, by three different parties, so three different investigations, have found that sound to be a species of cricket in Cuba, um, doing its mating call particularly loudly, bouncing off walls in some cases, which is what made it so loud. But so I think that if it weren't for the fact that this happened to afflict um, people under diplomatic cover, the first, you know, I think four or five cases were all people under diplomatic cover, and uh, that it was so quickly associated with a strange sound. They thought there must be something nefarious, nefarious here. It's got to be a weapon. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of the people who were um, afflicted by this, I think, really um, appreciated the ray gun theory. Um, I think it gave them <laughs> an explanation for why they were feeling what they were feeling. And it's, I, I, I think it took, it took hold early and they just have not been able to drop it. And I think it also allows them to live out their Cold War fantasy. I mean, these are people who grew up in a certain type of fiction. That, and if they joined the national security state, you better believe they were probably reading like John le Carré and all of these other things uh, in a time before people read. And so what this does is that it allows them to essentially use a, a Cold War trope to simulate fighting the Cold War, which is actually a nice little metaphor for the entire uh, basically course of U.S. foreign policy for the past 30 years. But uh, Derek... <laughs> Well, Bob, uh, you you wrote uh, your newsletter, one of your newsletters last week about Havana Syndrome based in part on uh, Natalie's reporting. Uh, it's been uh, 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 to me, it's been a very kind of bizarre experience watching this story unfold and as we've as we've gone from uh, these sort of isolated uh, cases of very nondescript symptoms, like I have a headache, or I, I'm nauseous, or I feel bad, uh, in uh, you know a variety of places around the world, with nothing really connecting them except this, like complete, just just totally hypothesized or, or hypothetical uh, energy weapon of some kind, and just to see reporters in particular, but but reporters and you know the government, the U.S. government, kind of jump. 10 steps ahead to just assuming that this and weapon must exist and it must be the cause of these cases. Um, as somebody who has observed this particular pattern play out, but, you know, American foreign policy and the national security state more generally kind of in its operations for, for uh, some time now, uh, what, what has been your sort of uh, take observing this story and, and how it's developed? Yeah, well, after I, after I first became skeptical of Havana Syndrome, uh, I I thought, like Daniel, that it's a good metaphor, in a way, for some recurring features of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, there seems to be some threat inflation. I mean, the, the, you know, that you take what could conceivably be a localized threat. It's not impossible that something's going on in Havana, but but all of a sudden, it's this it's this global conspiracy but then the more i thought about it the more i thought it's actually more than a metaphor 
uh, if you look at the dynamics, the kind of the psychological dynamics of the foreign policy establishment and, and some of the dynamics of journalism and so on, the various dynamics that have together blown this up into the idea of some kind of huge threat, uh, I decided they, they actually are the same dynamics that have been screwing up American foreign policy for a while, and I call it Havana Syndrome Syndrome. Like that's that was the title of the piece in my <laughs> newsletter, and and uh, I, I think it is is a set of tendencies that get us into trouble. I mean, one is just threat inflation broadly, and I think uh, you know uh, a, as you suggested also, I, I think some of that has to do with the kinds of people who are drawn into various fields. I think there you know certain fields uh, uh, attract melodramatic people. I think FBI agents are more melodramatic than the average person. I think podcasting. Right. Podcasters. I was going to thank you. Thank you for saving me that particular indictment. Uh, we have we have a preemptive confession. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, undercover agents and so on. Um, and uh, and then you have the, the, the there have been some really credulous reports about this in The New York Times, uh, in The New Yorker. And I think that has to do with the fact that that alerting people to threats and exaggerating them is rewarded in journalism. I, I think of, of kind of David Sanger as the premier example of this, but it's a it's a it's a common thing um, uh, broadly. Uh, and and you know you see just various things that are familiar features of U.S. foreign policy. This kind of overconnection of dots, right? It's like uh, okay, so it starts out in Havana. Okay, I, I get the theory, and then and then a report surfaces in China, and and they're they're attributing that to Havana syndrome. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what is the theory here? What what is? I thought like it was maybe Russia in Havana. Now what are Russia and China? conspiring and and you know in the cold war this was a big problem uh our our exaggerating uh the degree of coordination between uh you know moscow and beijing and not appreciating actual sources of tension that were there and that we we might have exploited um earlier so i see and and you know just the whole kind of the role of emotion in 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 deciding what is a threat you know, I mean, you know, many disastrous humanitarian interventions have begun with a kind of empathy that is itself laudable, maybe. But you see the same thing here. When you hear Anthony Blinken talk about these people who are suffering, and I'm sure they are, but he says, you know, listen, if you talk to these people, if you listen to their suffering, you know, it's kind of hard not to take that this seriously. So I, I finally decided this is more than a metaphor. This is kind of the making of American foreign policy in, in microcosm here, when you look at how this whole thing is played out. Bob, one thing that you said uh, at, at the beginning what I want to seize on for a second is um, this is how foreign policy journalism works. Uh, and, you know, as we were talking before we recorded, you're a veteran of the New Republic during its probably most influential as well as most infamous period. Um, and so why do you think um, this sort of behavior is rewarded in foreign policy journalism? And I'd like to hear both Bob uh, and Natalie on this, because obviously the Marxist answer is it's capitalism, and if it bleeds, it leads. But I don't think that people really care that much much about foreign policy, just like I think this is why a relatively a small number of people make policy and a relatively small number of people purchase newspapers to read about foreign policy. So in theory, you would actually have more um, leeway to be quote unquote honest. But what do you think it is about the sort of structure incentives of foreign policy journalism that leads to so much threat inflation, even after obvious disasters like Jason Blair or, or Stephen Glass or what have you? 
yeah, or Judy Miller or, or, or Jeffrey Goldberg in the Iraq War, any number of cases. I think, first of all, the fact that Americans don't care about foreign policy makes the problem worse. If your beat is national security, you got to work hard to get people's attention if you're a reporter. And nothing works like, oh, there's this threat out there. Uh, now, sensible solutions to the threat don't get a lot of attention. I mean, the reason my, my newsletter is called Non-Zero uh, the main reason is because I think there are a lot of non-zero-sum problems among nations, like arms control problems, genuine threats that they can only solve uh, through kind of uh, cooperation. Um, but but that kind of stuff, like boring solutions that don't involve, you know, uh, aggressive action, don't get much attention. But I also think the problem has gotten worse uh, in the new kind of media ecosystem uh, first of all, one new thing since since my days at the New Republic long, long ago, um, you actually have data about uh, how much traffic individual articles get. We take that for granted. But I remember the moment when Mike Kinsley, who had been my editor at the New Republic and had just started Slate, said to me, Slate was online, the New Republic hadn't been to speak of, and, and, and he said to me, do you realize we now have uh, data about how much attention each individual piece is getting and he said i don't think i'm going to tell the writers because i think that will corrupt them that was one of the wisest most prescient things i've ever heard um i mean just just yesterday or, or a couple of days ago there was this wall street journal piece about um what china may start a a, a military base in is it equatorial guinea the equatorial guinea yes and and and, and the, i think it was a reporter himself who on twitter said it would be Opposite the west, the, the the east coast of is he the one who said that? The, he well, I was in the and, article. I mean, I read the article. Okay, was, yeah. so Natalie's uh, piece, which was excellent, was in Matt Iglesias's uh, newsletter. Matt tweeted like, "Wait a second, what does opposite mean here? It's opposite Brazil." <laughs> well, I did the I did the actual math. Okay, and Equatorial Guinea is further away from Miami than Beijing is from Seattle. They're not getting closer. Okay, <laughs> they're not getting closer. They're getting farther away. Um, no, it's yeah, it's like fifty five hundred nautical miles from Miami you've done, yeah, to Equatorial okay, that's Guinea, about, and that's that's if you cut through West Africa. Like if you actually go around, as you would have to do if you were sailing a ship, it's it's even longer than that. Well, we've had enough sea talk for this episode, gentlemen. But I'm curious, <laughs> uh, why don't we go to Natalie? Because Natalie, you you came up in a different environment, sort of the environment that Bob was talking about, and how have you experienced, you know, doing natsec work, especially as it relates to the uh, Havana case? Um, how how has it been covered, and how do you say, see yourself relating to all the other uh, coverage that's been happening? And sorry, Derek, please. No, particularly. I was going to mention, you know, you wrote a piece uh, for New Republic shortly after. Colin Powell passed away, where you compared the reporting uh, on Havana syndrome to, uh, you know, the vials of anthrax at the UN Security Council and this sort of, uh, again, I, you know, I guess to, to, you know, reiterate something that Bob talked about was with, in terms of threat inflation. Uh, but yeah, can you, you know, sort of talk about your sort of take on uh, the way this story is being reported and, and how it fits in the pattern of uh, U.S. foreign policy over the last decades, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, I I wrote that New Republic article thinking that the parallel was almost so obvious that it's not worth commenting on. Uh, I mean, I was a high schooler when we invaded Iraq and I, I went to a, a couple protests, but I can't I can't say that I was too involved or, you know, too aware of it as it was going on. But I think anyone who's a sentient adult now <laughs> has to have some idea that one of the biggest 
lessons of the past uh, 20 years has been, um, you know, make make sure we're right. If people are talking a big game about there being weapons of mass destruction, you know, ask ask more questions about it. Be skeptical about it. Make sure that there is a, a great deal of evidence before we act on it. Um, and so it's gobsmacking seeing people um, really trump this up. Um, and so, you know, I got curious about Havana syndrome. It always sounded a little weird. And then there have been several reported pieces suggesting that it's likely mass sociogenic illness. And those were 2018, 2019. So I sort of thought it was over. Uh, and then I got really into the topic in early 2020, early mid 2020, when it starts being written about again. Um, and, and I guess I thought, you know, maybe there was some ambiguous evidence, or maybe there's some stuff suggested, suggesting, uh, you know, both sides, uh, and there's really nothing, there's nothing there. Uh, and so I think that coming back to your question about, um, you know, what does it say about foreign policy, national security reporting, I think that one of the most uh, telling things about the entire Havana syndrome story has been that it has been almost overwhelmingly and solely advanced by national security foreign policy reporters. Um, I, I personally, I wrote about politics, but health and healthcare the most. Um, and I think that if you're reading these stories from a health and healthcare perspective, the idea that we are supposed to consider, um, you know, symptoms of general malaise to be surely indicative of an attack or, you know, some some outside exposure, some specific exposure at all is just completely dubious. Uh, and I think that basically the national security reporters, I think that they, if I had to guess, got excited about the story. I think, you know, John le Carre novels, I think got excited about being out in front of this story. Um, if, it, if it were remotely plausible, it certainly would be a big story. Um, you know, they're all doing a very accessy type of journalism where they have people in their phone that will speak to them anonymously and that they are, you know, very, very excited to extract what secrets they can and prove how good they are at getting people to open up to them. Uh, you know, the problem is when they're doing that about stuff that's not true, it's not particularly useful. Uh, and I think that they... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get the impression that these reporters who have been at the forefront of these stories, your Adam Entuses, your Julia Iafis, I don't think that they've done much to vet what these people are saying, or I don't think that they've approached it with much doubt or skepticism in any way. So what you're saying is that a capitalist media is inherently unfree. <laughs> a capitalist uh, media is very unfree, but also I think the people who are most attracted to these topics, kind of what, you know, Robert was saying, I think that, uh, you know, the people who want to cover foreign policy don't tend to be the people who are critical of foreign policy or how it's been used in the United States. And obviously, that's a shame. Uh, you know, they want to, they want to get invited to events with the people that they cover, they don't want to alienate or antagonize them. You you mentioned Julia Afi, the the most egregious, and I haven't read as much, I'm sure, of the coverage of uh, Havana Syndrome as you have, but the most egregious piece that I've read was the one that she did for GQ, I think it was, 
uh, last year. Oh, did God. You, yes. Did you yes. one that's just as bad for Puck? And she has, yeah. I think, been the single worst reporter on Havana Syndrome in the, the country. The uh, story, like Natalie, category. what do you really think about Julia Yaffe's <laughs> coverage? Can, can, uh, I just, can I just add yes, that I Bob, think she, please, Julia Yaffe is a serial threat inflator as long as we're, um, uh, you know, but go ahead, Natalie. I just wanted to add my... Well, I, I, I mean, I'd like both of you. I don't know, Bob, Bob, if you read the the GQ piece, but it was. I mean, I'd like you to get Natalie's comment at least, and and Bob, if you read it, yours as well. It was basically uh, a, like a series of anecdotes about people who were, uh, you know, either intelligence officers or foreign service of uh, of some kind who are who got sick in some way, and and you know, as you say in in your uh, n- newsletter, Bob, it was sort of it's sort of like this appeal to empathy like oh god look they're all sick and it's it's so sad something must have happened to them and and there's some talk of you know uh past cold war research into directed energy weapons but no even attempt to try and connect that to uh like a modern development or to say that somebody has actually made a breakthrough in this in this field that would lead to the the kinds of things that have been observed in this uh this case and yet it's just kind of splayed out there as as like this is this is what's happening obviously so what it reads and i'm curious bob what you think of this um what it reads to me is it a kind of replacement for russiagate because the russiagate thing really went nowhere and things are still shit no this is another question another part of the question i think is is how much uh, does russia's you know, potential involvement here and the fact that it's uh you know we we seem convinced that this is all rooted in like soviet uh, directed energy research. Uh, how much does that add to the threat inflation? Because Russia is like, you know, the the, the foreign foreign policy or national security media is like uh, a dog with a bone when it comes to Russia anymore. And yeah, yeah. And so, you, Bob, you do the psychology of all this stuff. So I'm wondering how you see them relating. If you do. Well, first of all, I think there's two kinds of journalists uh, here. There are ideological journalists, and and I look, I'm not sufficiently conversant in in Julia Yaffe's entire oeuvre to do maybe a blanket condemnation. But I think it's fair to say, you know, she she has uh, an ideology. And look, she's as much an essayist as a, she doesn't present herself as some kind of, you know, daily news reporter. But there's, I remember years ago when she said, I think I heard her on the radio saying, Vladimir Putin is crazy. And like, that's just one of the worst ways to think about everything he does. And, and, and Ukraine right now is a good example. It's in our interest to understand what's going on in his head. And the first step toward that is to acknowledge that he is a rational actor. He has goals. Figure out what they are. Deal with it. It doesn't help us uh, to think of these various uh, people as uh, crazy or demonic or whatever. But anyway, then there's a whole other set of reporters you know, who are just, uh, you know, they are more or less, uh, they're, they're not particularly ideolo- ideological. They do want to get uh, their story, good play for their stories. And, you know, subtle dynamics can be at work here. It's like if you, before this was really on the map, the only way to sell this story, you couldn't sell this story to an editor who hadn't heard of it by saying, I don't think there's anything here. The initial stories have to say, <laughs> suggest there may be something really here. And then at that point, the reporters who have written that are invested in it um, and so on. But I certainly think, and maybe this gets back to your your question, for for whatever set of reasons, right now, it seems to me 
that uh, the threats from both Russia and China uh, are being pretty systematically exaggerated. Uh, and, and even those are different cases in a way. I, I do think some of the Russia stuff has its origins in Russiagate, where it was fueled initially by some Trump hatred, and then people were invested into the Russia is a, is a dire threat uh, narrative. And also, these are people who grew up with literal decades being told Russia is the enemy. Uh, that's pr- it's important. That shapes how one the structure of feeling, as we talk uh, talk about in academia. That doesn't go away. You don't get told Russia is evil for thirty five years and now they're good, and that that's the end of it. Um, so I think that they they play the perfect enemy. I mean, it's just so absurd. There's just no military threat to the United States. It has to be something else. But sorry to interrupt them. No, I just, uh, you know, this is just a great concern of mine right now with both Russia and China. That's not to say that uh, either issue is imagined. There are human rights violations uh, in China. Um, I think sometimes they're, uh, we, we uh, act as if we know more about them than we do. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, Anthony Blinken has uh, called what's going on there genocide. I just think he's obliged to tell us to spell that out, you know, and, and say this is why it complies with the definition of, of genocide. I don't think uh, we should throw terms around uh, terms like that around uh, loosely, but that's not an imagined issue. There are egregious human rights violations there, and China has real geopolitical aspirations, but I think if we sit down and try to get clear on what they are and aren't, we'll realize that there's a a, a, a small and finite set of issues that are potentially explosive, and it is there isn't some kind of uh, Chinese plan to uh, encircle us with authoritarian regimes. Which no, that's uh, projection, as Freud would say. I mean, that's projecting American desires to dominate the world onto other powers who have really displayed nothing to indicate that. Yeah, I, I agree, and uh, you know, to some extent, the same with Russia. It's like, look, if you, if the U.S. and Western uh, uh, Europe or the U.S. And, and and like the EU or whatever, just sanction the hell out of countries like uh, Russia and China or whatever, those countries are going to look for uh, other countries to consolidate economic ties with. And they're going to be happy for them to be authoritarian countries. And some of them are. And uh, so, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll stop. Uh, but you get, you get the, <laughs> the source of my ire. Um, Natalie, I wanted to ask you, one of the, the things that I, I really appreciated about the piece that you did at, at Slow Boring um, and your work on this in general is that you're not denying the idea that, that something is happening to these people, that they are experiencing real symptoms of something. It's the question of, you know, is, is it a, a, a microwave weapon that's, you know, somebody's beaming into their heads? Um, but, you know, you lay out pretty persuasively in this piece the idea that it's uh, what we're describing here is basically uh, a mass sociogenic illness, as, as Bob mentioned earlier. Um, but also that, you know, it, what, what people are talking about, the symptoms that these people are describing uh, are fairly common symptoms that people, you know, uh, everyday people describe having. And when you're dealing with, you know, it may seem like, wow, you know, it's like 200 people have described this cluster of symptoms, but that's out of, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions, really, of, of you know, intelligence and, and foreign affairs or foreign, uh, uh, foreign service workers in, in the U.S. Uh, government. And so it's not it's not really that surprising, uh, but can you talk in de- some some more detail about you know some of the things you you mentioned in this piece about the the symptoms that people have described? Yeah, so I I think that this is best characterized as mass sociogenic illness, 
formerly called mass hysteria. Uh, and I, I think that you can think about that in a few different ways. Um, when I think of sociogeneity, I think of, you know, a situation where basically uh, a diagnosis or the concept of an illness spreads socially from person to person, almost the way an infectious pathogen would. Uh, but the actual pathogen isn't being transmitted. It's the sociology around it. Uh, and so going back to Cuba, what I basically think happened, that was a very, uh, I think, very likely a classic uh, mass, hysteria, mass hysteria scenario where it was a very stressful moment for these people at work. Um, Trump had just been surprisingly elected, uh, had basically been making a point to say that he was going to reverse the Obama era period of detente with Cuba. Um, and so a lot of the people who were working in Cuba um, were pretty new there, had come there in around 2015 when we had ramped things up. Uh, so I think that Trump getting elected probably felt like, oh my gosh, are, are we going to have to move our whole family again? Uh, is everything here kaput? Will I be transferred somewhere else? Uh, you know, all of the relationships I built with my colleagues, what's going to happen to those? You know, I think a, a very, a very stressful and uncertain situation, which is generally how uh, mass sociogenic illness begins. Um, I, I think that, you know, one or a few people got symptoms. There was the... Uh, asserted association with this ringing sound, which of course was a species of cricket that a lot of people had had in their yards. So when they started to hear these rumors that, you know, there were people who were falling ill uh, along with this noise, it was a noise that they recognized. They actually played the recording for each other, um, you know, in and around the embassy. Uh, at one point when new recruits were coming to Cuba, State Department officials would play that recording. So these people were very much primed, not only to be looking for that noise and not only in a stressed out, probably terrifying situation where they hear that their colleagues might start to get attacked. Um, they're also just scanning for symptoms constantly. You know, I mean, if you are in a situation where you hear that, uh, you know, a headache, some nausea, some dizziness might indicate that you and your family are being victimized by a heretofore non-existing weapon. Like, of course, you're going to notice and be more bothered by symptoms like that that you might not notice otherwise. So I think that there's probably a good chance that the early days in Cuba did conform to this classic mass hysteria model where, you know, uh, a, a, an acute sense of terror is maybe even inducing symptoms in some cases. And you know, any person who studies functional illness can tell you that that's quite common. That's not an unusual thing. Um, and I think that from there, the more and more coverage you get of this and the more and more focus you get on these issues within the agencies, I think it's a combination of probably, you know, um, some probably functional symptoms, some somaticized stress, anxiety, depression, etc., uh, again, we know those things are incredibly common uh, at any given time. Probably, you know, a billion or more people on Earth are suffering at least some of those symptoms uh, described by patients uh, who identify with the diagnosis of Havana syndrome. Uh, and I think that, you know, any any health complaint in one of these agencies is 
basically singled out and, you know, thought to be a potential case of Havana syndrome, um, that people are, you know, noticing headaches that mm-hmm. might be more easily overlooked before. And you're right that this has been going on for five years now, and they've got a few hundred cases. And that's out of, you know, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people in these agencies uh, staffed around the world. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an average of a few dozen people a year getting a symptom uh, complex that we know is very common. Um, and so yeah, I think I think that the understanding of Havana syndrome, the understanding of what this illness means, that strikes me as being very obviously sociogenic. And so what's really interesting to me, and Bob, I'm curious what you think about this, is that I, I, we kind of live in an era of sociogenic uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, illnesses. I'm thinking, you know, very much of chronic Lyme and uh, a lot of anti-vaccine protests. And I was wondering if, you know, as someone who is a social observer, if you think there's a connection, because it does seem like a lot of our elites are all of a, uh, a sudden coming down with illnesses that can't be confirmed by traditional scientific methods. And, and to me, that's not, you know, the most surprising thing in the world, given the state of the world. But I was wondering what you thought. Well, I, I think uh, modern technology makes it easier for small numbers of people who have anything in common to find each other and reinforce their belief uh, that they do. Like now, now there are groups of people who are who have the same specific idea about how they're being surveilled and persecuted, and it's plainly implausible, implausible stuff. But they're like in effect an interest group. So I think there's a, a technological thing. Uh, here, I mean, uh, I will say it's been going on a long time. A friend of mine, after my, after I uh, ran my piece about this, sent me an article about in in 1954 there was a, what they thought was an epidemic of windshield pittings. Somebody noticed they had little little marks in their windshield, and it, it really they had all these theories about uh, you know uh, everybody started noticing them. You've got little marks in your windshield. And they had all these theories uh, about radioactive fallout. And then finally somebody noticed, you know, if you looked at a, at a, at a car lot, like a used car lot, the, the number of pits was proportional to the age of the car. You know, cars just pick these things up. But I think one thing to keep in mind is like, you know, if your sample size is sufficiently large, even seemingly strange anecdotes will come to your attention. Like, like the, uh, the thing that convinced me that this was very shaky was in there was a piece in may in the new york times and i've actually got it here i'll read the the the, the, the passage that got my attention it says in 2020 quote a military officer serving overseas pulled his vehicle into an intersection then was overcome by nausea and headaches according to four current and former officials briefed on the events his two-year-old son sitting in the back seat began crying after the officer pulled away from the intersection, his nausea stopped and the child stopped crying. Look, if I'm that guy, I'd be going, that's kind of weird. But, you know, if you're fielding the government, since then, by the way, the government, the Defense Department has sent a memo to 2.9 million workers worldwide soliciting reports of symptoms. Well, when your potential, you know, database is that big, uh, you know, as Natalie says, uh, you know, weird, weird stuff is going to, uh, is going to come to your attention, but I do think the one that the one thing, the way modern technology makes it so easy to find people who share your worldview, your symptoms, whatever, is going to you know create more false positives. 
But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, even even accounting for technology, these things are experienced by a certain class or professional group. There's not you know many people in rural America claiming that they're getting Havana syndrome or chronic Lyme. So it does seem confined to what might be termed the culture-making classes or the bourgeoisie. Um, so I do think that 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 sort of technological connection is is an important element. Um, to me, it seems like it's expressing particularly when you're talking about the national security state, which has been absent a mission for a generation. You know, had simulacra of missions that couldn't co- come come close. To, to measuring uh, the Cold War, or let alone the real founding moment, Nazi Germany. It's just, you know, first time as tragedy and as farce. And so there are people who are dedicating themselves to a project that has failed over and over and over and over and over again. And they're experiencing psychological symptoms. And I think you see that throughout history, you know, uh, in regard when, when, when certain social structures decay and they lose their logic and legitimacy, which I think we could describe the last, you know, beyond Trump, the last 10, 12 years since the Great Recession as the gr- loss of legitimacy in this country, you're, you get what, what I think it's Gramsci that called it morbid symptoms. And I think to, to, to me, this seems to be a little bit like that. I don't know if you guys think that's totally incorrect, Natalie or Bob. Well, I come from the neoliberal days of the new Republic. I have to be you know, skeptical of these these dangerous left wing <laughs> theories in general. I, I mean, I do think you have seen things like this in various social classes, uh, but um, I, I don't know. I, I haven't. Thought I mean, about QAnon, that. right? That's a, that's another that's another example. Yeah, but those are not all elites place. by any means. I mean, that they're, woman, they're, they're, the woman who was shot and killed at the Capitol, she was a QAnoner. She was no, you know. She was no college professor. Well, she was uh, basically proletarianizing professional class who had been like a, in a mm-hmm. professional military. and was, uh, uh, But there seemed to be a lot of people in debt, from what I recall, a lot of small business owners, like Jefferson's Yeomanry, uh, striking back. Uh, I think there was a lot of that. It didn't seem to be, to me, maybe I'm incorrect, and please correct me if I'm wrong, particularly what we, what might one traditionally call the working class. Well, it seemed to be sort of above that. Yeah. Um, if your theory position. is expanding uh, to include the oppressed as well as the oppressors, I'm starting to warm up to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think, I mean, I think that this is something that affects all social classes. Uh, if anything, poor people more, but I think that they define it differently. Um, you know, I think that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, functional sy- symptoms, and by that I mean, you know, symptoms that don't have a discernible anatomical basis. So people who, you know, have really bad headaches, but there's not actually anything wrong with their head or, you know, it's, it's not, it's not clear what's wrong. Um, I, I think that people of all social classes have that functional neurological disorder is definitely experienced by a ton of poor people. Um, but what I, what I do think is different is I think that, uh, again, the diagnosis being sociogenic, and I think that, you know, Havana syndrome uh, is definitely a very specific, not only social class, but, you know, portion of a social class, like a certain professional cluster. Um, But I think chronic Lyme is definitely largely a, um, a higher class, professional class phenomenon. And I think that part of that is because uh, those people are the ones who are, you know, uh, doing doing a ton of this uh, motivated research that I think they kind of fall into the rabbit holes where mm-hmm. um, they start researching the communities. Um, certainly in the case of chronic Lyme, they are the ones with, uh, you know, uh, able to pay in cash or able to wrangle with their insurers to get 
treatments covered, uh, et cetera. Um, whereas, you know, I think a lot of working class people probably, you know, just, just develop chronic pain and, right. um, you know, live, live with family members, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but you know, th- they probably are less likely to come to identify with one of these contested diagnoses, uh, than is a professional class person. Uh, as for whether or not it's, um, you know, a, a symptom of all of the gravely immoral things that the United States does, I mean, I, I think that that's, I think that that's certainly possible. Um, you know, especially, especially in some of the cases involving CIA people. Uh, I, I do think it's worth remembering that a decent number of Havana syndrome uh, patients are also just people who, you know, work in passport processing or whatever. Um, you know, people who have a very different role within um, the foreign policy security state establishment. But they're at embassies, is that correct? Uh, um, I mean, you know, someone someone who works uh, as a diplomat in another, if they're in the, you know, consular services division. Um, Got it. Yeah. So I think we're we're approaching a good place to to wrap up, but um, to to bring this discussion to what I think is uh, the most important point, I, I'd like to ask both of you to comment on this. Um, you know, we kind of laugh about this story and the absurdity of it and the way that it's been um, kind of treated by the 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 national security press and um it, it is kind of it is absurd i mean it is an absurd story but the problems that it illustrates the problems of threat inflation the problems of appeals to emotion over you know fact and and um you know these are these are serious problems in the state of um in the national security community generally not just in in sort of uh the coverage of national security in the media um that lead to to serious problems i mean they lead to 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 bad places they've led us to bad places in the past um i I, this is related to something that that danny wrote for for my newsletter foreign exchanges uh, last week um but my, my question is sort of how do you how do we get away from this and and i i ask because i i don't think for the most part this is malicious uh like i said this, I agree. Is, this is where yeah. it's related to, to what danny's talking about uh i don't think these people wake up in the morning you know thinking like how can i manufacture a story today to get some clicks and uh get everybody panicked about russia again it would it in some in some ways it would be much easier to deal with if that were the case if you could just say you know uh julia Iaffa or, or any of the other people who you know cover this story uh just like woke up yesterday and said uh, you know i'm, I'm going to do something evil and and you know sort of inflate this threat and, and scare people um you you could deal with that in a, in a different way but what i what i would argue is for the most part these are people who think they're doing good work they think they they're they're helping um they come through a system that selects people you know it's sort of self-operating at this point that selects people for in their ability to inflate a threat or their sort of tendency to inflate a threat or their tendency to appeal uh, to emotion over reason and it's not a problem of individuals it's a problem of systems what what can we do about that to change that well i think you know for one thing you can just try to shine a light on some of the dynamics like for example i think if you look at think tanks um on the one hand, think tanks, many of them, 
are in effect being paid to inflate threats. What I mean by that is uh, they get funding from uh, arms uh, control, uh, I, I mean, uh, arm, armaments manufacturers, or they may get funding from a particular uh, country or interest group that has a particular enemy that it wants to keep or make an enemy or something. Uh, but that's not to say that the, the people at the think tanks, the fellows, are are lying. They are true believers. They 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 they're you know they are hired because they have a threat inflating worldview. So first of all, I, I agree. I, I don't think we should spend a lot of time demonizing the individual uh, people in that particular way. But I think we should shine a light on what's uh, going on. And and I, I'm you know I'm heartened by some developments in in kind of elite space. I mean the very uh, the advent of the term the blob as a term of derision uh, to refer to the foreign policy establishment, um, you know, I think is a good thing. I, I, you don't want to overdo it, but you you want to um, have, have a set of tendencies, of threat-inflating tendencies that you can identify and that you try to stigmatize. You, you would like, uh, you know, a, a, a online to have a growing group of people who uh, call attention to the problem, um, and, uh, you know, and I, I've, I use the term, I, 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 uh, right now the, the Friday, uh, the Friday issue of my newsletter is called the weekend blob. I'm actually going to kind of change the name a little bit. The spirit of that will live on. Um, I, I think, uh, that's good, you know, but that said, you're up against some very powerful forces. I, I think, uh, many of which we've identified. Natalie, any final thoughts related to that? Yeah, when I think back on five years of ridiculous Havana syndrome coverage, I think you can identify points where the story keeps getting advanced to push a particular political narrative. Um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that early on, uh, I think that this was really pushed by uh, you know, Marco Rubio types who, because this was happening in Cuba, basically wanted to do chest thumping about Cuba and, you know, look at Cuba. We never should have opened relations with Cuba. Look at these shysty Cubans. And that that was the narrative early on. Uh, I think that a little bit later, um, you know, when it kind of starts to get hinted that Russia might be part of it, it sort of became more of a, a liberal Thing where, you know, people were concerned that President Trump isn't taking Havana syndrome seriously enough because he loves Russia so much, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I think that the, <laughs> the, the fact that not only has there never been a modicum of evidence for uh, attacks or weapons of any kind, but even less so <laughs> for Russia being involved. I mean, the case is completely ridiculous when you really break it down into its parts. And there's no way that this narrative would have gotten as far as it has were it about, uh, you know, a more obscure country. I mean, I think that the fact that this is a narrative about uh, Russia and how horrible and mysterious Russia is and how they will stop at nothing to strike at the very heart of the United States and what makes us free. I mean, I think if those narratives weren't already out there and peddled by people like Julia Ioffe, I, I don't think that people would have been so accepting of them. And I don't think that editors would have, 
you know, so confidently splashed it across their pages. And so I guess, I mean, the answer to the question, how do we stop it? Obviously, it's it's very difficult, but I think it's probably partially to push back on these narratives earlier. Um, you know, that uh, whenever there are, obviously you guys know this, I'm preaching to the choir, but other people, I mean, I, th- I think that in general, um, demonizing a given country is extremely reductive uh, and, and not, <laughs> not, not productive in any way, uh, not going to advance our interests. I mean, not that we necessarily share interests, uh, but, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that anything good can come of uh, demonizing a given country and, you know, allowing coverage to be lazy of a country that's regarded as bad. Uh, and that, you know, we see there being like an epistemic breakdown when that starts to happen. And it, it eventually leads to uh, allegedly smart people publishing stories in prominent news outlets about fucking ray guns and everyone nodding in a circle about it. <laughs> Can I change one thing? I, I think there is some hope kind of in the newsletter space. I, I thought Natalie's piece was really exemplary. It's the kind of thing you should have seen in the New York Times if it were doing its job. Just really go through the evidence and take a close look. I, I think the Washington Post has been a little better here. I think Joel Achenbach did a story that was a little bit skeptical, but it's just heartening that uh, even when the New York Times is not doing its job, um, you know, somebody like Natalie can do it and and, and it can get uh, a fair amount of attention thanks to, to Twitter and, and so on. And I think that's that was originally behind a paywall, but I think it's now uh, for everybody, anybody who wants to go to Slow Boring, I think can read it right, Natalie. So I recommend that. Uh, well, uh, Bob Wright said it here first, American prestige is more important than the New York Times. Uh, so on that happy note, Bob and Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it and hope to have both of you back soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.